This podcast was first broadcast on Fresh FM, the top of the South community access radio station. For more information on Fresh FM, as well as links to other great local podcasts, go on our website freshfm.net or download the accessmedia.nz app. Institutes is launching its researchers at Nelson's Cawthron Institute. Cawthron Institute expert Sarah Canterbury and the Cawthron Institute. The Cawthron Institute and GMS Science are developed by Cawthron scientists to detect. Hi, I'm Charlie Cuff, a Year 10 student from Nelson College, and welcome to the Gen Z Time Machine. In this episode, something a little different. To celebrate 100 years of Cawthron, I'm going to dive into the Cawthron's rich history and talk to John Beeching, who has worked at the Institute since the 1980s. Philanthropist, businessman, grand old man, and the personification of compound interest. These are all names given to the 19th century businessman Thomas Cawthron, who died in 1915. He left behind a will instructing that a great portion of his wealth should be used to create what is now known as the Cawthron Institute. 100 years later, the Cawthron is at the forefront of science and innovation in New Zealand. In 1848, James Cawthron, together with his wife Mary and six children, set out for Nelson, New Zealand. A perilous journey aboard an 1800-style vessel that took the company of eight a little over 160 days, which is more than five months at sea. When the 15-year-old Thomas Cawthron arrived in New Zealand, the first stock market had been open for a little over 50 years. Despite this, Thomas showed great interest in money-making and business, working as a clerk in Wellington before he had turned 17. Thomas's aptitude for making money was first truly displayed in 1852, when he moved to Australia in search of recently discovered gold. Upon his return to Nelson, Thomas flourished in the shipping industry, eventually gaining a monopoly on the Nelson shipping agencies, importing vital items such as coal from Australia. It was through these business dealings and wide-ranging investments that Cawthron amassed his considerable fortune. Throughout his life, Cawthron exercised great shows of philanthropy, donating the equivalent of more than $12 million of today's money in funding for the Grand Marble Cathedral Steps, expanding the chain links on Rocks Road, and a massive 1,000-hectare sanctuary known as the Cawthron Park to city officials. When Thomas Cawthron died in 1915 at the age of 82, his will instructed that the vast majority of his estate, £231,000, more than $100 million today, should be used to create an industrial and technical school, institute and museum to be called the Cawthron Institute. In the years that followed, Thomas Esterfield led the Fledgling Institute, purchasing Falworth House in 1920, which became the Institute's first home. The grand old building holds a commanding position above Nelson even today. As the foundation chair of chemistry and physics, Esterfield was instrumental in setting up Victoria University Wellington prior to his appointment as director of the Cawthron. 
In the 1930s, Estherfield retired and Theodore Rigg was appointed to replace him. Dr. Rigg pioneered research into steam cleaning methods used to sterilise soil which improved crops for glasshouse growers in Nelson. Later in the decade, Cawthron scientists helped determine cobalt deficiency as the cause of bush sickness in New Zealand, their first major discovery. Just a year later, in 1937, the entomological branch of the Department of Agriculture was transferred to Nelson in a joint venture between the Department of Scientific and Industrial Research and the Cawthron Institute. The 60s and 70s marked a strong shift in direction for the Institute, following a decade's decline kick-started in the 40s. With the institution struggling for funding, a new director was brought in, in the form of Dr. Barry Cousins. Cousins redirected the Cawthron's energy away from soil and agriculture and towards microbiology and biochemistry. Cousins sadly passed before his vision was realised, but the path was set and the Cawthron had a revitalised plan. In the following decades, the Cawthron Institute honed in on the microbiology field. In 1981, a toxic algae bloom halted fishing activity in Tasman Bay. This proved to be an opportunity for the Institute to move into further marine research, which became a core focus in subsequent years. Ironically, algae is one of the most exciting spheres of growth at the modern Cawthron, this year announcing important work to develop the world's first algae-based anaesthetic, a globally significant achievement. This being a history program, I thought I would chat with someone who has far more experience than me, and get a first-hand perspective on the Cawthron. John Beeching has worked for the Cawthron since the 80s, first joining as a wood chip tester. The reason I came involved was because they didn't know when the ships were coming, so they recruited this crew of old men who were not too reliant on the pay, because we didn't know when we were going to be called upon to work, it could have been... Any time the ships came in, normally they came in probably about once a, once a month, I suppose. And when they started to load, they loaded 24 hours a day, so it worked out very well because uh, when the ship was loading, we took a test every 15 minutes because the Japanese, in the infinite wisdom, decided they only got to pay out on dry ships. So we had to weigh a sample every 15 minutes to establish the moisture content in the chip and we cooked them for uh, what uh, 16 hours. We had a whole row of ovens, 12 ovens, tested in 500 gram samples. We'd weigh 500 grams, put it in the oven, cook it for 16 hours and then weigh it again and that was the difference of the moisture. And also we examined them for uh, particles, chips, stuff that shouldn't be there oversized ship, so forth, so on. And um, that was a fairly, you know, it was a good thing. We, we've all enjoyed that. And, kept in, and I suppose, was it be about the 1990s, I suppose, that the, uh, the thing slowly ground to a halt and we poor old devils went away and I'm the only one left. They're all dead, all the others. <laughs> at this point, I should mention John's 98. He started working at the Cawthron in his 60s, when most people are planning on putting their feet up. And by that point, he'd already lived quite a life. So I flew those things in the war, you see. John's pointing at a picture pinned to his workshop wall. It's a de Havilland Mosquito, a World War II fighter bomber. But I lived through the Blitz in London. Mm -hmm. I lived out at Horn Church, which was right close to the fighter station there. So we got a pretty, we were bombed all the time. After a couple of years of that, 
a friend of mine, Billy Campbell, said, I've had enough of this. He said, let's go join the army. So I said, fine. That's a good idea. So we went to the recruiting office in Romford, had a sort of a cursory medical, and the medical bloke there, was a, I think he was a sergeant in the army, he said to Bill that he was okay. But he said to me, son, go back to your work. He said, your feet are flat. He said, you wouldn't be any good in the army. Well, right across the hall was the Air Force recruiting station. <coughs> so I went in there and I said, I want to join the Air Force. And they said, fine, son, what do you want to do? I said, well, um, I'm, an, I'm an engineer. He said, oh, we need, we need people, you know, engineers. He says, you don't want to fly, do you? So this was in 1941 when we were really getting them knocked out of the sky, you know. So I said, yes, if I can. And they gave me a bit of a medical there. And from then on, I got called up for another medical, which I went to. Western Supermare, got my number there, 1339821, and uh, about three months later, in April 1942, Hitler's birthday, April the 20th, I was called into St John's Wood, got my uniform, and I went to Canada to, on the um, ship called the Andes in '42, uh, and did my training on Tiger Moths on the prairies in... Um, Spring and some boys in the winter actually we were flying tiger moths in the snow. Tiger moths fitted with skis, if you could imagine that. We were. And uh, then I got my wings in at Brandon, Manitoba, and came back to England and was flying those things over Germany, which was um, pretty unique sort of job, you know, where people were shooting at you all the time. But anyway, we lived through it. <clears throat> How did you end up in the Corps Front at 98? They found I was quite handy with my hands because I repaired a few small things during the intervals and they said, well, you stay on just to, as a handyman. So I said, yes. So I did. And so for the last 30 years, I've been employed by the Corson Institute, fixing everything that needed fixing that well, I can get in here, of course, because as you can see, I'm not over, overburdened with space. Yeah. yeah. And what was the state of the from when you joined it? The state of it? Yeah, what, what was it like? Oh, it was I think there was about 60 people employed in those days against the 200 off today. And um, it was nothing like it is today. I mean, there was, there was the, the rig building uh, was there, but the other, the, 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 the big long building where you, where you were at the reception, that didn't even exist, that was built since. And then the boat shed was previously a workshop and I was over there, I had a workshop over there, but that was closed off and absorbed into the boat side of things. And of course, well, the place is still growing and still being built, now they're talking about putting a new place up down the wharf. Um, how has the equipment that you've needed to repair changed over the years that you've been working with? Oh, it's vastly. I mean, they've got this, uh, some of the stuff I've never even seen before in my life and probably never will. It's all, you know, it's scattered all about. But the advancement of science and technology anyway is so vast. So it's almost incalculable how much it's grown in that, particularly in 30 years anyway. Yeah. How have you been able to keep up with the new technology? Oh, I don't have any. Most of, <laughs> most of this stuff is quite alien to me. I only do my things. If they bring in something to fix, I'll fix it. But I don't have to go, sort of go into the background of it too far because I wouldn't understand most of it anyway. Um, I can tackle most things right down to microscopes, provided they're not too advanced, you know, but uh, otherwise we cope. So what kind of thing would you be doing on a day-by-day -day basis? Oh, well, we, we, we used a lot of these mixers, you know, like you use on a, 
ice cream mixer, like a milkshake mixer. And um, unfortunately, they have to be auto closed twice a day, and it wears the bearings out, and I replace the bearings. John shows me a box of the components he's been working on. That's the number I've changed in the last few years. As you can see, it's a fairly steady job, you see. But they're, they're all worn out bushes from, from the shafts. So that's a, that's a, a reasonably steady uh, breadwinner, that one, yeah. And uh, whatever, all kinds of stuff. There's always stuff to solder. I've got, I've got reasonably good gear here, for, which I mean. I wouldn't mind a small lathe and a drill press, but I don't know quite where you'd put them in there. And why have you stayed with the Cawthorn for so long? Why? <coughs> That's a good question. To me, it's a sort of a therapy. I mean, most people at the age of 98, they're not working, are they? You know, it's pretty, pretty unusual. But I like it and they like me, and it's just worked out very, very compatible. And um, I continue, I, I intend to continue because there's no reason why I should stop. But um, it's not an arduous job. I can sit down most of the time, you know, and... Uh, it's better than sitting at home twiddling my thumbs and reading a book. Yeah. You know, the money's nice, but it's not a, an essential part of the job. So I, so I really look forward to coming here every day and meeting somebody at the sea room. With a, and we have a tea break at 7 o'clock, which we normally do. So, yeah, there we are. That's the Cawthorn. And how do you feel about the Cawthorn Institute's future moving forward as a company? Oh, I reckon it's all go. I think they keep on growing. I see absolutely no reason why they shouldn't. You know, they're, they're, they're right up to the minute with all the stuff and any new advancements. Well, ask yourself, you know, look at the progress out of the, out of the muscle farm, out of the horror, you know, I mean, all that's going on out there. Um, stuff like that, you know, I reckon they're, they're really, really go ahead. Having outgrown its current location in the wood, plans are set to develop an area of Port Nelson into new laboratories and reposition the Cawthron in a science and technology precinct. Global warming and climate change are Gen Z challenges, but thankfully this organisation will be key players to help tackle them. Thomas Cawthron could barely have imagined how respected and important his legacy would become. And that's our show for this week, and actually our final show for the year, so thank you for listening, and I hope you've enjoyed and maybe even learnt something along the way. As always, I'm Charlie Cuff, and I hope you have a great holiday. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this podcast available by funding the Access Media Project. Other great podcasts from Fresh FM are available through the accessmedia.nz app or our website freshfm.net.